Good morning, church family. When I was a kid, I learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube. I was actually really into it for a little while in middle school. I would like bring my Rubik's Cube to school and show my friends that I could solve it, and I would try and get my time as fast as I could get it. I think the fastest I ever did it was like 36 seconds, which is um, which was not really competitive if you've ever looked at speed cubing. I think those people can do it in like four or five seconds most of the time. Um, still, I'd practice over and over again, and eventually it just became pattern recognition and muscle memory. Now here's the funny part. I can still solve a cube today, but I have no idea how to explain it to anyone else. I cannot for the life of me explain how to do it. I do not know anymore, actually. If I tried to slow down and show you what moves I was doing in order to explain to you how to solve one, I would forget the moves. And I wouldn't be able to finish the, the, the cube. I have forgotten the basics of how to solve a Rubik's Cube. All I can do now is solve one on muscle memory. What I want to caution is this sort of thing happening in our spiritual lives. Sometimes we can get really into the weeds on theological positions, on uh, Christian ethics, what a Christian should do in this circumstance or that circumstance, on arguments about spiritual gifts and that sort of thing, that we forget about the gospel. We forget about or ignore the beauty and the goodness and the truth of our God. So we're in Genesis 44 today, and the main point I want to drive at is that in light of our own sin, we have to trust in Christ. In light of our own sin, we have to trust in Christ. So more or less, I'm planning to preach the gospel this morning. So I hope you like the gospel. Just as a reminder of where we've been for the last few weeks, um, in the in, uh, previous episodes of Keeping Up with the Israelites, uh, we're in the Joseph narrative in Genesis. Jared has been preaching through Joseph's deception of his brothers. Joseph has been established as a governor in Egypt to steward resources during a long famine. His brothers who had betrayed him and sold him into slavery in Egypt are suffering from the famine and they come to Egypt to buy food. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. So he's now testing them to see what kind of men they've become. He's putting them in painful and awkward situations to see how they behave so he might tell if they've repented of the evil that they did to him. He first accused them of being spies and told them to return with their youngest brother, Benjamin, to prove their innocence. Jacob, their father, didn't want to let his youngest son go to Egypt because he feared for his life, but finally he was persuaded. The brothers return with more money to buy food in order to survive the famine, and they have a grand feast, and all seems to be going well. But Joseph has one more test up his sleeve, and that's what we'll look at today. So... If you're a note-taking person, I've split this text up into two parts that we'll discuss. Part one is called the final test. The final test, it's verses one through 17. And part two is called the final plea. The final plea, verses 18 through 34. So the final test, verses one through 17. And the final plea, verses 18 through 34. Let's read Genesis 44, verses 1 through 17. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, 
in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Then Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this? that you have done. Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are in, behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So we now see Joseph's final test for his brothers, his final test to see if they've really changed or if they're just pretending in order to get the food that is necessary for their family to survive. Joseph sends them on their way, once again, putting silver in their sacks to create another moment of fear and uncomfortability. But this time, he places a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. The silver cup apparently had some significance to, to Joseph. He says he, it was used for divination, like reading tea leaves to tell the future. It's unclear if Joseph actually practiced divination or if this is part of the ruse that he's leading his brothers along. Divination is a practice frowned upon by Israelites later, Israelites later on. And given how upstanding Joseph is in the Genesis narrative thus far, it may be safer to assume that this is part of the show that he's putting on, as the original audience of the Torah may have been put off by Joseph actually practicing divination. But I may be wrong, there are plenty of off-putting things in Genesis. So he places the money and the cup back in their bags, and suddenly the game is on. Just imagine, the sons of Jacob are leaving Egypt once again. They just had a feast and been drunk and merry. They're on the road home with news of a good trip. And they're reminiscing on their party, telling anecdotes to one another, enjoying having their bellies filled. It's a grand old time. When suddenly Joseph's steward appears hot on their heels and calls to them saying, why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you repaid evil for good? 
These are weighty words to fall on the sons of Jacob. You see, narratively, Genesis has been drawing a distinction between the evil actions of the family of Israel and how God uses them for good. We'll see this more fully stated in chapter 50. So this question draws out that dichotomy. Why have you repaid evil for good? Why did you do evil to me when I had only done good to you? This question even calls back to something Joseph may have said to his brothers after they threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery. Joseph had only done good to them, yet they repaid him evil for their envy. Why have you repaid evil for good? Then the steward accuses them of stealing a cup in verse 5, saying, Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. The brothers reject this out of hand, saying, far be it from us to do this thing. They contest that they have been honest men thus far. They passed Joseph's test when he sent them back with their money. They, they brought it back to him. We are honest men, they say. Look, we didn't, ha- we didn't take this money when we could have. Why would we now steal when the master has been so kind to us? Then the brothers make an oath, a foolish oath but precisely the one that Joseph wanted them to make. Verse nine, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die and we shall also be my Lord's servants. If any one of us should be found guilty of this thing, that one should die and the rest of us will remain your servants. That's the oath, a bold and a foolish oath. This oath does reveal something though. The brothers have unified. They've bonded together and said, One for all and all for one. This already reveals something of the change they've experienced. This is far from how Joseph last saw them, bickering over what to do with him once they'd thrown him into the pit. Divided, hateful, spiteful. Now they're suddenly willing to put all of their lives on the line for the sake of even one of them. This is a pretty incredible oath to make, yet still foolish. I think we can draw two points of application from this conversation and they're both tied around the idea of integrity. The Bible actually has a lot to say about making oaths, about swearing to do something. Ecclesiastes cautions saying, do not make foolish oaths and fill your your oaths immediately. We can think of stories where people hastily swear to do things and it comes down on their head. I'm thinking of Jephthah and Judges where he makes a foolish oath and it costs his daughter her life. Now, oath-making isn't quite as prominent in our culture as it was in the ancient Near East. Contract law has become so complex in our culture that you have to hire someone to interpret oaths for you a lot of the time. (laughs) When's the last time any of us read the terms and conditions for something we signed up for or the end-user license agreement for something that we agreed to? We interact with oath-making differently in our culture. However, Jesus does give us instruction on interpersonal oaths, on how to interact with people that we know when we agree to do something. Let me read Matthew 5, 34 through 37. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Okay, do you see what Jesus is saying here? Don't take an oath where you swear on anything because you aren't in control of anything. You cannot keep oaths for a certainty. Whatever you might promise is not within your power to give. It's within God's power alone. So when you say yes, do it. When you say no, don't do it. Let your actions speak to your integrity. Do not make oaths. Christians, this is very instructive for us. Christ calls us to be honest in our speech. If you say you are going to do something, you are committed on the honor of Christ's name to do that thing. Even if you've uh, never offered something up in your oath-making as collateral, if you say you are going to do something, do it. If you say you are not going to do something, do not do it. This could be as simple as actually showing up when you say you're going to come to something. Christians should have a reputation as dependable people because all that you agree to do is on the honor of Christ's name. And I certainly don't mean to cast shame here. There are legitimate and good reasons to cancel something or to not do something you say you will, but I'd encourage a deep heart examination. Are my motives in this as pure as I can discern? Sure, they'll never be wholly pure, but sincerely evaluate your heart. If your conscience is clean in the matter, then go with peace. The other point of application I want to draw out here is the significance of a character reputation. Yes, Christians should have reputation for being dependable, but our reputations go far beyond that. Have you ever wondered why it is so crucial for a Christian or a pastor to be above reproach? To have a reputation that causes his community to doubt it when an accuser comes against him? We see the value of it here in the story. The brothers appeal to their honesty during the last test as evidence that they would not steal again. It's crucial for us Christians for the same reason. It goes beyond simply not doing wrong. It is providing a defense against the evil one. We're told that we will face opposition. The enemy is crouching at the door, right? And he is an enemy of lies. We can expect to be falsely accused of things, especially those who hold positions of leadership. The enemy will target, target those individuals specifically. So hear that, elders and deacons. Even if you walk uprightly, you may still be accused. And what will you say then? Ideally, if you've walked in a manner above reproach, you and your community will be able to appeal to your character in the face of opposition. I think this instruction will be particularly important for us in the coming decades, as there is a growing sector of our culture that hates Christians. There are those that pray to Satan for our destruction. The character we display will be, in part, a defense against the accusations and oppositions of these individuals. So to the best of our abilities, we ought to live in a manner that defends us from these accusations, and we ought to keep our word. Here, with the oath of the brothers, they offer the life of the offender and the servanthood of the rest of them. This is a costly oath if they're wrong. Think of it. They don't only offer up themselves, but their father, who will certainly starve if they don't return. Their whole family's existence, the whole family of Israel, the whole promised line hinges on this oath that they've just made. It's a bold and foolish thing to promise, but it reveals, 
It reveals how they've bonded together and unified. And it reveals how certain they are that they did not steal anything. The steward softens their oath in verse 10, saying that he'll only take the offender as a slave, but the rest can go free. Now, this is where Joseph's plan really starts to click, right? He's set Benjamin up to become a slave in Egypt in order to see how his brothers react. He's recreating the events that led to his own enslavement in Egypt. One of Jacob's favorite sons is to be thrown into slavery in Egypt. And the first time it was the brothers who caused it. The second time, have they changed enough to stop it? They check the sacks and lo and behold, Benjamin has the cup. Benjamin has the cup and the brothers fall to the ground and tear their robes. They mourn. What have we done? What have we done? This calls back to Genesis 37 when the brothers come to Jacob and tell him that they found Joseph's robe and Jacob believes that he's been devoured by an animal. He tears his robe and he mourns for many days. Now in the mirrored situation that Joseph has put them in, they tear their robes, mourning the loss of their brother. And even though they are regarded as innocent, they now file back into Egypt to try and reason with Joseph, to try and free Benjamin. They approach Joseph and bow before him. That's interesting. I feel like I remember someone prophesying that they might bow before him. Yes, back in Genesis 37, Joseph had prophetic dreams of his brothers gathering around and bowing before him. These are the very dreams that made his brothers hate him. And now here they are fulfilled. Joseph says, playing up the ruse, did you think that you would get away with this? Don't you know I can see the future by divination? Maybe he's saying this to ensure that they don't lie to him. He's saying, you better not lie to me because I'll know. And see how Judah responds. The spokesman of the brothers, Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Fascinating. Judah says that God found out their guilt, not Joseph. Joseph didn't find out their guilt. God discerned the guiltiness of the brothers. What's interesting is that both Joseph and the brothers know that they are innocent of the event in question. Everyone talking here knows that Benjamin did not take the silver cup. So maybe Judah's statement here is about something else. Maybe he's acknowledging God's punishment of another thing they may be guilty of. While the brothers are innocent of theft, they are guilty of betrayal. And Judah now perceives their guilt, incurring its wrath decades after the fact. We may take this as a warning. Scripture is clear. Sin demands sacrifice. Wrongdoing will not be hidden. Some of you are familiar with Jordan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist who's become something of an ideological speaker. He's a fascinating and divisive man, to be sure, but... He says something in one of his talks that I find really interesting. So he practiced clinical psychology for decades throughout his life. And in one of his talks, he says, he says this, he says, I've never in all my years as a clinical psychologist, and this is something that really does terrify me, I have never seen anyone ever get away with anything at all, not even once. He says this after decades of hearing dozens of people's deepest, darkest secrets and sins. Not a single one of them got away with it. 
We do not escape the consequences of our actions. As Christians, we know this is particularly true because God is a perfect judge. But Peterson here, who is not a Christian, seems to be saying that people don't even get away with things during their lives. We do not escape the consequences of our actions. We have this dark spot in our hearts that that thinks, I can take the easy way out. I can lie about this. I can cheat on this. I can cut corners here. I can abandon my responsibility here. And usually it's not that explicit. Usually our heart isn't that explicit about, about our desire to sin. But we certainly behave in a way that reveals that that is what is in our hearts. But our sin is not hidden from God. And God is a perfect judge who will not let sin go unpunished. Each and every one of us has incurred the holy wrath of God. Each and every one of us has guilt that has been, quote-unquote, found out by God. And he is not the kind of God to let the guilty go unpunished. So do not be fooled when your heart or the enemy lies to you this way. It's the same lie the serpent gave in Genesis 3, that you will not surely die. It can start by thinking that the small things don't matter. A small lie is inconsequential. A little push here, a little give there. Remember that in Romans 12, Paul does not use the active voice, but the passive voice when he says, do not become conformed to this world. He doesn't say, don't conform to this world. He says, do not become conformed to this world. It's because you do not have to attempt to conform for it to happen. You just have to stop resisting the world. You just have to give it a little and it will take far more. If you give your sin a cookie, it's going to ask for a glass of milk. And you will not even get away with giving it a cookie. No one gets away with anything at all. The guilt that God has found out from these brothers is their betrayal of Joseph. And now they face the consequences. So they offer all of themselves up as slaves. Take one of us, take all of us. But Joseph declines. He says, it would be unjust to punish you for, the, for your brother's crime. So go to your father in peace. Joseph has perfectly laid out his test. He's put Judah and the brothers in the same exact situation that they were when they sold Joseph into slavery. Your father's favorite son stands to be thrown into slavery. It will bereave your father beyond comprehension if this happens. What will you do? What will you do, Judah? What will you do, sons of Jacob? Will you make it easy on yourselves? Take your freedom and be glad that your father's favorite is gone, despising your father for his sin? Or will you repent and fight for your brother, attempting to save him for the love you have? Let's read on. Verses 18 through 34. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he is alone, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. 
Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when, our, and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with, uh, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know, what my wife, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you shall bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah makes his plea. He steps away from the brothers in verse 18 and steps forward as their spokesperson, as the leader. We're seeing a lot of leadership from Judah here. He pleads with Joseph like he would a king. He recognizes him as essentially having the same authority as Pharaoh. This is a further fulfillment of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. Judah's acknowledging Joseph's lordship over him. Judah then goes on to share the story of their testing so far. He shares with Joseph his experience going back to Jacob and requesting the opportunity to bring Benjamin to Egypt. And during this pleading, we see Judah reporting Jacob's words concerning what he said when Joseph was lost. You've got to think about that. Joseph is hearing for the first time the story about what his father said, how his father felt when he did not come home. And it's despair. Surely he has been torn to pieces, he says. Painful enough that Jacob says, if he also loses Benjamin then his gray hairs will go down in evil to Sheol. This is a poetic way of saying it will be the death of Jacob if he loses his only remaining son of Rachel. Jacob will be crushed if Benjamin does not come home. You can imagine the emotions stirring up in Joseph, the longing to comfort his father, the pain he feels at hearing his father's pain. Joseph is welling up and overflowing with compassion for his father when he hears this. So Judah makes his final plea. In verses 30 and 31, it says, Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Judah is pleading on behalf of his father's life for Benjamin's freedom. He has taken responsibility in the eyes of Jacob for Benjamin's well-being. So, what does he offer in return? Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let, me, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father 
if the boy is not with me. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah offers up his life instead. Judah puts his neck on the line. Judah asks to remain a slave in Egypt that his brother might go free. This is a radical change in Judah. A radical change. This is the same Judah who sold his brother into the same slavery he's offering to go into now. This is the same Judah who broke his father's heart by taking away his favorite son. He now throws his own life on the line to save his father's favorite son because he loves his father even in spite of his sin of favoritism. What happened to Judah? How did this come about? You'll remember in chapter 38 that Judah made a mess, humiliated himself, and was confronted with his sin. You may also remember that when he was confronted with his sin, that he turned and did right by Tamar, the woman he had wronged. He humbled himself and accepted the consequences of his sin. See, two things happened in that chapter that come into play here. First, Judah recognized his own sinfulness. He recognized the wickedness of his own heart and he turned from it. We saw the beginning of Judah's journey to become a man that would live self-sacrificially back in chapter 38. And secondly, we saw Judah lose two sons. Remember the reason he wouldn't marry Tamar to his youngest son is because her previous two husbands, Judah's sons, had died because of their sins. Judah lost two sons and is now able to recognize the pain he put his father through by robbing him of Joseph. And he is wholly unwilling to bereave his father again by robbing him of Benjamin. So Judah sees this moment as the penalty for his sin against Joseph, but also an opportunity at redemption for that moment. A chance to make the right decision this time with a new heart, full of love for his father. He offers himself up in Benjamin's stead. You see, God is all about the utter transformation of his people. We see this consistently throughout scripture. We see him form Peter from a wild man into the rock upon which the church is built. We see him form Paul from a man of hatred to the foremost theological mind of a self-sacrificial faith. Here we see Judah, who is a betrayer, a Judas, if you will, formed into a man that will lay down his life for his brother. Some of you have lost hope. Some of you have lost hope that you'll be healed of your sin. Some of you have been steeped in darkness for so long that this is just how life is now. And there isn't something better coming. Take heart, Christian. Our God, our almighty God, is very much about the utter transformation of his people. He intends to heal you, to free you from your sin. He intends to bring you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Have hope and wait on the Lord. If he can free Judah from his sin, he can do it for you too. Judah loves his father, and so will stay as a slave in Egypt in order that Benjamin might be freed. Think about that. For the love of his father, he gives himself as a ransom for the life of his brother. Who does that sound like? For the love of his father, he gives himself as a ransom for the life of his brother. Is it beginning to make sense why Judah 
will be the father of the kings? Is it beginning to make sense why a descendant will come from Judah's line that will be named the Lion of Judah? The Lion of Judah, the magnificent one from his line, the one who for the love of his father gave himself as a ransom for many, for the lives of his brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ. I said earlier that God is a perfect judge who will not let the wicked go unpunished. To do so would be unjust. He must punish all evil. How then are we to have hope? What hope do we have to say that we are not wicked in front of a perfect God? What hope do we have to say that we have done no wrong before a holy God? We have no hope within ourselves. There is nothing we can appeal to within us that could persuade him to be unjust when he judges us. But praise God, we still have a hope. We have a brother who goes to the king and intercedes on our behalf. We have a brother who accepts our punishment, so we do not have to face it. We have a brother who has become a ransom for many. We have a hope if and only if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we trust him for our salvation. I want to make this as clear as possible. This story that we've just read from Genesis 44 precisely describes our situation. We are all Benjamin in the scenario. With one caveat, we actually stole the silver cup. We actually stole the silver cup. We actually offended the authority in question. We have been wicked and evil towards him when he only ever gave us goodness and kindness. And guess what? No one gets away with anything ever at all, not even once. So we've been captured and are now beholden to that authority, to God for our theft, for our sin. Judah summarizes our situation in verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. We have no defense before God. We cannot clear ourselves. But we have a brother who loves us and loves his father, and he offers himself up in our place. What is our defense? We have none except Christ. We have none except for Christ and Christ alone. None of our good works will save us, only Christ's intercession on our behalf, and only for those who have placed their trust in him. So let's lay down our self-righteousness, acknowledge the desperate state we find ourselves in, and call upon the Lord to bring us out of it. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the desperation of our situation. We pray that you would allow us to feel our guiltiness, that you would allow us to feel the immense weight of wrath we've incurred for ourselves, but all this only so that we would glorify Christ all the more when we put our trust and hope in him. We pray that you would make us people above reproach and guard us from the enemy. We pray that you would silence the voice of our flesh that whispers lies to us. We can hide our sin or get away with anything when it comes to you. Give us eyes to see the reality of our situation and our need for Christ. We pray for an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel and how good the news is that you bring to us. We thank you for your kindness, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.